Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're going to be looking at a short section this morning, just verses 33 through 37. I uh, intended to go farther than that, but nope. (laughs) So, uh, as you'll recall, the Sermon on the Mount is the, at least in Matthew's recounting of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, it's, it's the first public teaching of Jesus uh, that's recorded for us anyway in Matthew's gospel, but he has already declared that uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and um, he's already been introduced to us in Matthew's gospel as the Messiah, as God with us, and as such, he has the authority, he has the wisdom uh, to lay down the law and to clarify the, the true meaning of the law. And so basically what we have here in the Sermon on the Mount is uh, an elaboration Uh, an exegesis, if you will, of the code of conduct for the kingdom of of heaven. In most of our workplaces, we're responsible to read or hear a code of conduct and then sign off on it. And uh, the idea is that members in the kingdom of heaven, of which Jesus is the king, we're committed and we're responsible to live in a way that's consistent with the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what's going on here. And um, what Jesus often does in the Sermon on the Mount is to take a section of the Old Testament and also a tradition of the Jews and uh, make a distinction between them, show how the law of God Uh, relates to the heart, the deeper meaning of the law, and then show how the teachers of the Jewish people at that time in many instances had perverted the the law, led the people astray. So that's what Jesus is doing. And in doing this, he points out that the law is not only far and wide, but it's deep, it's penetrating. It penetrates to the heart. Um, It is a law that requires an inside-out righteousness and not just an outside-in righteousness. So uh, now this theme of the law of God and the heart Now Jesus is going to apply that to the subject of uh, oaths, but the big idea is not oaths. Really, the big idea is the sanctity of, of the truth. So let's read these verses, and then we'll dive right in. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 33. The words of Jesus. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So the teaching of Jesus on the sanctity of the truth. So the first thing we see here in this passage is what the people had heard in verse 33, what the people had heard. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Uh, And so Jesus here is connecting what he's going to say here with what he has been teaching, for example, in verse 21 when he taught on uh, anger. And remember, the larger subject there is the sanctity of human life. But he began that passage with the same words, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And in verse 31, it was also said, and now in the same vein, again you have heard that it was said to those of old. Notice that Jesus doesn't say here, it is written. Because this is what the Jewish people were used to hearing. You have heard that it was said to those of old. This is what they were used to hearing from their rabbis. And what they had heard came from two sources. The first source was the Old Testament scripture. And that's what Jesus cites here in the second half of verse 33 when he says, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And that's not a citation of a specific verse per se, but it's the gist of several passages of scripture such as Leviticus 19 and verse 12, where God uh, said through Moses, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Or Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And there are other passages that taken together uh, mean or say, you shall not uh, swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. What about the Ten Commandments? Because earlier Jesus elaborated on The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And he elaborated on the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Well, swearing and oaths actually affect the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And it affects the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. If you think about it, To swear by God's name, 
means to back up the truth of what you're saying with God's name. You're, you're basically saying, just as God is true and cannot lie, so what I'm saying now is true and I'm not lying. But you're pulling God into it. And so if you then don't keep your word, you're not only guilty of lying yourself, you're also implicating God in your falsehood. And in terms of the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, that is an application of the sanctity of truth, but particularly applied to our neighbor. And remember that um, all of the law can be summed up with you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the sanctity of the truth in general applied to loving your neighbor means don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And when you think about this whole subject of swearing and oaths, when you swear by God's name and then don't keep your word, you're not only harming your neighbor yourself by your lie, you're also saying that your neighbor can't trust God's word because you've connected God with your word and you've lied. And now through your action, you've sullied, at least in the mind of your neighbor, the trustworthiness of God's word. But there was a second source of what the Jewish people had heard. There was the scriptures, and that's what Jesus cites here. But the second source was Jewish tradition, the teaching of the rabbis. And in the context here, represented by the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day. And that's what we see next in verses 34 through 37. So what Jesus had to say, verses 34 through 37, and he begins that section by saying, but, but I say to you, And just like before, regarding the um, sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, Jesus is not contradicting the law of God. In other words, he's not saying, God's law says this, but I say to you that. He's uh, correcting the false teachings, the perversions, the uh, errors of the leaders of the Jewish people, but he's also applying it to the heart. And, and here, he seems to be focused very specifically on this Jewish tradition regarding oaths and swearing. And this has been preserved. We, we can deduce it from the passage itself, but it's been preserved in the Mishnah, which is a written collection of Jewish oral traditions that survives to this day. 
And in that Mishnah, there's a surprisingly lot of discussion on how to frame your oath or your, your swearing so that it's not so bad when you lie. And that's no exaggeration. These traditions recorded in the Mishnah are an attempt at compromising between the practice of taking an oath, because it's really clear in the Old Testament law that taking an oath in God's name is very serious, and the holiness of God's name. And so instead of swearing by God's name, according to this tradition, it was common practice in Israel in Jesus' time for people to swear by a bunch of lesser things like heaven, the earth, Jerusalem, and a person's own head. And, and why did they do that? Because these rabbis responsible for the Mishnah thought that they had discovered a loophole in God's law, a loophole for lying. Look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 23. And notice verses 21 through 23. Moses wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, If you make a vow to the Lord, your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And this is familiar territory. If you make an oath in God's name, if you swear by God's name, you must keep it. Otherwise, you're dragging God's name through the mud in addition to lying. But notice the rest of the passage. For the Lord your God will require it of you and you will be guilty of sin, verse 22. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Think about that. You, you can, now, we know what that really means. God does not mean here, surely, that as long as you don't take an oath or swear by God's name, then it's okay to lie. You're not guilty of sin if you lie because, after all, you didn't take an oath or swear by God's name. We know that that's not true because lying in a bunch of places in the Bible is forbidden. We've already talked about the ninth commandment. And God is the God of truth and he requires truth. Surely that's not true. But what God through Moses is legislating here is faithfulness in terms of oath-keeping. So when he says you will not be guilty of sin, he means you will not be guilty of the sin of breaking your oath 
But as I had mentioned, the Jewish rabbis thought that they found here a loophole for lying. Oh, how convenient. We can take oaths all day long and swear all day long and lie and it's going to be okay because at least we're not doing it in God's name and we will not be guilty of sin. See, book, chapter, and verse. It goes on in verse 23. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And it's so tragic that rather than uh, teaching God's people how important it is to be truthful and how sinful it is to lie and how gracious God is to forgive liars who repent. Instead, they taught the people this loophole, which isn't a true loophole. Craig Keener in the IVP Bible background commentary put it this way. People swore by all sorts of things other than God to testify that their word was true. They reasoned that if they broke their oath based on any of these lesser things, at least they were not bringing God's name into disrepute. It eventually became necessary for rabbis to decide which oaths were completely binding, hence the Mishnah. That's why they wrote it all down and argued about it. Jesus says that everything by which one could swear is ultimately God's and demands that people simply be as good as their word. And that's what Jesus means when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't add on an oath every time you say something. Don't say something, don't uh, like a lot of people in our culture say, and forgive me for saying it, but I swear to God, and they just throw that around. Don't do that. Just tell the truth. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't look for loopholes in God's law so that it's okay to lie in certain occasions. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus concludes verse 37 by saying anything more than this comes from evil. Does this mean then that all oaths are forbidden without exception? Did I sin? For example, when I, uh, like all other federal employees, take an oath of office when I got hired? 
No. Just as divorce, as we have seen in verses 27 through 30, uh, 32, just as divorce is an allowance for sin, the reality of people lying, the reality of sin in a fallen world so that people swear by God's name or take an oath in God's name is an allowance for that reality. When, when God um, gave the law for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, that didn't mean that he approves of the practice of divorce in general. It is... Uh, a provision in the law of God that is appropriate because divorce happens in a fallen world. And it's a way of acknowledging that legally and even giving freedom and preserving the reputation, in this case, of a divorced wife. But as Jesus would say in Matthew 19, from the beginning, it was not so. But because of your hardness of heart, God allowed you to divorce. And in a similar way, from the beginning, oaths and swearing were not necessary because God created Adam and Eve, God created mankind upright, holy, like he's holy. They didn't have sinful hearts, they didn't have uh, uh, um, a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Therefore, before their fall into sin, Adam and Eve's yes was always yes and no was always no until that wily serpent came into the picture and deceived them and then they rebelled against God and, and uh, fell themselves. And so, oath-keeping and swearing are not absolutely universally forbidden, but they're an allowance by God because of the reality of sin in a fallen world. But an oath is supposed to be taken really seriously. They should be few and far between just like our use of God's name. When we use God's name, we want to use, use it reverently, respectfully, realizing that just as God is holy, his name is holy, and so we shouldn't just say, God, 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 uselessly, carelessly, in the same way we shouldn't have to back up our words with an oath all the time. Just let our yes be yes and our no be no. That's what Jesus is regulating. And we know that because God himself has sworn and taken oaths. Lots of examples. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 3 to the patriarch Isaac, he said, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. 
For to you and to your offspring I have given all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. So here's God himself swearing an oath. In Psalm 132 and verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Jesus. uh, The Lord swore an oath to David that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to come in the flesh and sit on his father David's throne. So God is an oath maker and an oath keeper, a promise keeper. So obviously, uh, taking an oath, swearing universally is not a sin. Many, many other examples. Here's a a summary of the Bible's teaching from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, There's a whole chapter on lawful oaths and covenants. It says, people should, should swear, people should swear by the name of God alone and only with the utmost holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear an empty or ill-advised oath by that glorious and awe-inspiring name or to swear at all by anything else is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet in mighty and significant matters, an oath is authorized by the word of God to confirm truth and end all conflict. So a lawful oath should be taken when it is required by legitimate authority in such circumstances. Whoever takes an oath authorized by the word of God should consider with due gravity the seriousness of such a weighty act and to affirm nothing in it except what one knows to be true. For the Lord is provoked by all ill-advised, false, and empty oaths, and because of them, this land mourns. And I would add to that, because of this lack of respect for the sanctity of truth, this, this land mourns. But may it not be true of us, brothers and sisters. May God help us to be people of the truth. But that's not the end of the message. Remember what Jesus said when he kicked off the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so it's really interesting uh, to think through all of the Sermon on the Mount in those terms, how Jesus fulfills the Sermon on the Mount. And it's also really interesting to think about how Jesus fulfills the law itself, the Ten Commandments, for example, the summary of the moral law. So how does Jesus fulfill the law in this sense? in terms of the sanctity of the truth? 
Well, we've already seen he upholds the true meaning of the law. He strips away the additions of the traditions of men and he upholds the true meaning of the law. And so remember that the provision of swearing by God's name and taking oaths is not a loophole for lying, but a solemn declaration of the sanctity of the truth. That includes my oath of office as a federal employee. It includes our marriage vows, among others. We should always speak the truth in love as believers. We should always keep our word with or without an oath. And so Jesus upholds the true meaning of the law. But then also think about this. Jesus fills his people with the Holy Spirit. And that is uh, based on Romans chapter 8 and ver uh, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That's so important for us to remember. Jesus came into this world not just to give us a get-out-of-jail-free card, not just to provide a uh, just ground for God to dismiss his case against us because of our sin. That's true, but that's not the only thing. Jesus came into this world to set his people free from sin. Jesus came into this world to make his people holy. That's what his name means, Jesus. He shall save his people from their sin. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. He sanctifies us. He makes us more and more holy as believers. And so think about that in terms of the sanctity of truth. We've seen the third commandment, the ninth commandment. God gives us, by his grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, a new heart, not <clears throat> like our former heart that's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Not that we never, ever, 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 ever lie, but we're not, it, we're not under lying's dominion. Now we love the truth. We have a heart for it. And when we're not honest as believers, we experience the Holy Spirit's conviction and we want to make that right and confess our sin to those that we've sinned against and to God himself. And so, he gives us the Holy Spirit, who is also called, by the way, the Spirit of Truth. 
so that we would walk in the truth and so that we would fulfill commands like this one. Therefore, having put, uh, put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his, with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Ephesians 4 and verse 25. But then here's another way that Jesus fulfills the law. I just read to you from uh, Romans 8 and verse 3 that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Do you know what the rest of the third commandment says? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I have a question for you. Have you ever in your entire life used God's name in vain? Have you ever used that precious name, Jesus. That name which is above every name. That name in whom we're all called to put our trust. Have you ever used the name of Jesus as a curse word? The Bible says that alone makes you guilty before a holy God. You may think that you're a good person because you've never spent time in jail or you've never robbed or committed actual physical adultery or whatever, whatever, whatever. Maybe you're super scrupulous in your income taxes and so you think God is impressed with you. But what about the third commandment. This is why the gospel is the good news. God does not call sinners like us to pull up our bootstraps, to turn over a new leaf, and to start being someone that we're not, and to basically ignore our sin and pretend like it never happened. God calls us, just as we are, to come to the Lord Jesus and lay our sins at the foot of the cross, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, to put our trust in him. And why is that? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus was condemned for us. Jesus was counted guilty for us. The curse from our blasphemy against God's name was laid on Jesus because Jesus has delivered us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And that's no small thing because Jesus not only always told the truth and always walked in the truth, 
But Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. He is the truth incarnate. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so that's no ordinary person who died on the cross as a substitute for our lying along with all of our other sins. That is the God-man, the eternal Son of God, truth itself, truth himself. He came into this world as a man, and he lived without sin, and he suffered and died on the cross at Calvary, and he was raised on the third day so that liars and cheaters and swearers and blasphemers and adulterers and murderers and robbers like you and like me could be saved. Come to that Savior, that Jesus today telling the truth about your sin. That's what it means to confess, by the way. You know how the Bible says that if we confess our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved? To confess means that we say the same thing as. And so when we confess our sins to the Lord, we're being straight up with God. We're saying the same thing about our sins as God. We're saying, God, I'm not coming to you because I'm an impressive person or I'm good or I'm better than anybody else. You know my heart. You know all of the blasphemous words I've ever, I've ever spoken. And still you invite me to come to your son. I come because that Savior died for me. And that Savior promised that all that the Father has given to me, um, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will by no means turn away. I'm coming, Lord. I'm coming to Jesus. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Confess your sins. Confess him as Lord. Believe in your heart and he will save you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy son. We thank you for all that he is, for all that he has done, for all that he continues to do in our lives and in his kingdom around the world, building his church, saving sinners, calling lost sheep to himself, seeking and saving the lost. We thank you, Lord, for all that Jesus is going to do. We pray, Lord, that we would be people of the truth, that you would forgive us of our dealing fast and loose 
with the truth. May we speak the truth in love. May we say what we mean and mean what we do. May we keep our word. And may we glorify our Father who is in heaven. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.